Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. Today we're diving into a topic that impacts the well-being of individuals and communities alike, community nutrition. Community nutrition is more than just feeding people. It fosters empowerment and sows the seeds of health and equality. Colton McCracken is a registered dietitian currently working as a SNAP education nutritionist at Cornell Cooperative Extension of Jefferson Community. His previous work experience includes a school educator at Island Grown Initiative and a coordinator at the Green Mountain Farm to School. A warmest welcome to you, Colton. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me today. I look forward to um, having a discussion of community health and how it impacts our audience, but also those who are most vulnerable. So I appreciate you allowing me to come on, share my stories, and also um, have a wonderful conversation with you. It's my absolute pleasure. And as you know, right away when I came across your work, I knew I wanted to chat. So it means so much to me that you're here. Awesome. I look forward to this conversation and seeing where it leads. Great. And we know that community nutrition can have a significant impact on people in so many ways. And we're going to be talking about all of that today. But before we do, I want to ask about your backstory. What inspired you to decide you want to be in community health? Why working with underserved populations is a passion of yours? And also tell us about your background in education and how that all ties into where you are today. Yeah, I think that's a a wonderful place to start. And certainly my background is a very unique journey in how I ended up where I am now. Um, I will say that when I first went off to college um, at Keene State University or Keene State College, I was undecided. I wasn't really sure what my passion was. I had interests and I think a lot of people can relate to being in that position where you're on this wonderful journey and you're trying to figure out who you are. And as I played around with some early courses in health electives, I came across this class that was called the Food, Health, and the Environment. And as I was sitting in my chair back then, I didn't realize how much of an impact it was going to have on not just my passion, but also my professional journey as well. And one thing that I certainly appreciated of this class is that it dived into um, not just our food system, but also um, our reliance on uh, certain types of ways that food is processed and also um, just our reliance on uh, certain quick and processed food items. And I was very interested in not just the nutrition area, but also um, how can I have an impact on this? Um, growing up, um, my family traditionally is a third generation um, livestock farm, and I've seen how uh, farmers can support a community, but also how people in the local food system can play a role in supporting not just the health, but also that social aspect of being a community as well. And uh, um, 
lo and behold, a few years later, I um, graduated with a um, degree in food science. And my advisor had strongly encouraged me to um, look into being a registered dietitian. And at first, I was a bit hesitant. And I think a lot of folks who graduate with a degree in nutrition, they aren't sure if they want to be a dietitian or if they think that um, the dietitian um, role is only in the clinical setting. And it wasn't until that I came across a unique opportunity um, with a dietetic internship out in Montana that I realized that there are many different ways that this um, profession and also licensure can play a role, not just in the clinical setting, but of course in food service and also the community setting too. I love it. And I came across one of your YouTube videos. I happened <laughs> to just be looking for something else. And it was you talking about soil health and carbon footprint and farming practices. And that was so wonderfully put together. That's something I recommend everyone to go and check out. I will definitely include a link. What made you want to create that video? Um, well, actually, it's a funny story because the Montana Dietetic Internship um, places a strong focus on sustainable food systems. And we were really encouraged by our preceptors to really seek out ways that we can have a sustainable practice, not just in the community setting, but how can we bring that to um, hospital hospitals, primary care um places and also the food service um, aspect. So in this specific project, we were all given different topics um, related to food systems. And one of the ones that was left, I noticed was carbon sequestration, which um, plays an emphasis on uh, not only soil health, but also how can we maintain that soil health as things are being farmed. And I, a lot of my reading, especially with this specific topic, kind of um, led me to some farms in, I believe, New Zealand and some other countries that focused on using trees and forestry to really enrich the soil health while also still maintaining their practices of uh, farming as well. I think what's very interesting about um, building a sustainable food system is that you want to honor people who are currently in that system, but finding ways to not only help them be successful, but also how can we make that practice sustainable as well. And I think with a lot of smaller farms that really spoke to me because there's a lot of um, notions that farming um, with livestock is um, bad for the environment, but I think mm -hmm. it's how you practice that is makes a big difference as well. So I think the the carbon sequestration was something I was very unfamiliar with at the time, but it was very interesting to see how um, we could talk more about that in that video. So I appreciate you looking into that. Yeah, you certainly were an expert. I learned so much. Even though I've been a dietitian for years, I always learn something new. And that was a great video. So thank you for putting that out there. Um, Colton, I would love for you to tell us about your experience at the Island Grown Initiative, as well as the Green Mountain Farm to School. I think those are pretty cool and diverse experiences as a dietitian. Yeah, absolutely. And they're definitely two that are very similar, but also very different. I'll speak first to the Green Mountain Farm to School because that was my first opportunity to really showcase and share my expertise and knowledge um, as a registered dietitian um, in the community. And being originally from Vermont, um, the Green Mountain Farm to School is essentially a nonprofit organization that promotes the health and well-being of uh, uh, children and families, uh, while also connecting schools and farms through food and education. And this was a, 
AmeriCorps service opportunity. So it was a full-time um, position that required me to serve around 1,700 hours. And although this wasn't um, a, red, a job specifically for a registered dietitian, I felt like this was a great way for me to really practice um, that education educational piece with connecting people to not just food, but getting people motivated to not only learn where their food comes from, but also get hands-on as well. Um, I managed uh, three to five schools um, in the Northeast Kingdom, which is a very, very, very North part of Vermont. That's a stone's throw from our neighboring country of Canada. Mm -hmm. And I got to not only develop and maintain relationships with our partners, but also be the primary contact for some of these schools, which involved um, planning a, a garden to grow, harvesting that. One of our big projects was that we had a community harvest dinner where students were able to prepare foods in their own garden and serve it to their families, which I thought was I a very that. unique opportunity. Um, one thing that I very much appreciative of this role is that it gave me an ability and also an opportunity to practice working with stakeholders at many different levels of uh, not just schools, but also the community, uh, talking with administration staff to build programming, working with teachers around their schedule to not only connect it to their topics, but also how can I connect it to social studies, uh, science, um, different kinds of literature as well. We had an ag literacy week where we got it, where we were able to go in and read stories to children, but also connect it back to food and nutrition. Um, and then, of course, you know, talking with uh, food service staff, food service managers, and also the custodial and behind the scenes people that help you really bring that programming alive. And uh, being able to deliver workshops to a variety of age groups was very unique, but also the the most exciting part of my day is when kids and Argavan, I'm, I'm sure you can probably speak to this as well. You get those questions that are so odd and interesting or like, my mom says that uh, carrots help your eyes. And is that really true? Yeah. And I'm like, well, actually that is true. And you get to learning about all the different ways to approach health, but also getting people, like you said, curious and excited about learning about food and nutrition and how it can really um, be added rather than focusing on foods that could be taken away. I think that provides a very awesome opportunity to hold conversations. Yeah. And I think it's bringing back that beauty and element and positive element of food and nutrition, because oftentimes we can be looked at negatively, you know, the mm -hmm. food doctor and, and the know-it-all and someone who's going to come in here and change everything and not see people where we're at. And we're actually saying, no, it's quite the opposite. And so we want to bring all of those back in. We want to talk about the social determinants of health. We want to understand about culture and we want to see where people really where they are and to mm -hmm. be able to work together, not just you know, I'm the professional and, and you're someone that I'm speaking to. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I would say, a very unique opportunity that not a lot of um, individuals get to have. And uh, when I was doing work with Green Mountain Farm to School, I really wanted to spread uh, um, my knowledge into that focus of farm to school education and also um, garden management and bringing local foods to schools as well. So that's in the height of the pandemic, this is um, an opportunity that I found uh, um, with an organization, IGI or Island Grown Initiative. And this is based out of Martha's Vineyard. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with uh, um, the geography around New England, um, Massachusetts has two 
islands below it. One is Nantucket and one is Martha's Vineyard. And Martha's Vineyard kind of looks like a closed fist uh, that you're looking from the side. And it's a very, very interesting, uh, um, not just um, area, but also in terms of like uh, food systems and opportunities for people. It's um, usually at the height of its uh, tourist season. It's a very heavily trafficked place mm -hmm. that is for attractions, getting away. There can be over 100,000 people there, but in the dead of winter, there can be as little as 20 to 30,000 people, I believe, on the island. Wow. And seeing that was very eye-opening to me. Being part of Green Mountain Farm to School, I did notice um, some trends with agritourism and the idea of bringing using food and agriculture as a way to bring people in but this of course was a very different scenario in that a lot of people were you know visiting or vacationing the island and also um what was interesting is that for full-time residents living on the island full-time is very challenging because not only are a majority of residents seasonal residents, meaning they're only there for a part of the year, but also finding a place to live that is reasonably priced, um, that is safe to live in, and also has proper resources can be very challenging. I, I remember um, when I was looking for apartments down there, there was um, a room for a $1,200 a month. Um, I had my own room. I had access to the kitchen. And if I wanted to use the main fridge on the floor, that was an extra um, change to it. So that in and of itself tells you some of the struggles that people might have with accessibility down there. And I didn't mean to get off topic, but that kind of helps me really frame what Island Growth Initiative's main focuses is that it's a organization, another nonprofit that not only promotes regenerative agriculture practices, but seeks to uh, um, support food accessibility and also nutrition security through food shares. They have a mobile market and of course, several farm to school programs that are at institutions on the island. I myself was in charge of um, two different schools, their regional high school and also um, one of their elementary schools as well. Um, it was a very unique opportunity for me to not just collaborate with people on the island, but also be able to uh, utilize um, the farm that the regenerative farm, the Island Grown Initiative has that grows a large sum of food. I cannot remember the exact statistics that it provides, but every week we would be um, driving around our renovated um, box truck that had a lot of different produce in it. You'd have people that would come pick up food. There were things like eggs and a variety of seasonally grown foods. And they had a beautiful cold storage facility that allowed you to keep some of those fresh produce items into the winter as well. And being able to see that support in, the, in a community that is very much um, kind of working uphill in terms of not only having access to food, but also being able to have um, facilities that allow them to lead healthy lives in a very um, reasonable way. I was going to say how neat it is that right out of school, you were able to have this wealth of opportunities and experience of being immersed in the community. For a lot of new grads, oftentimes, like you said, it's clinical or they may not know what's out there until they've spent a couple of years in dietetics. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the beauty of your story is like you saw what was out there and, and you developed a passion and maybe your niche early on. Yeah, absolutely. And while I'm not there anymore, I appreciate both opportunities. And like I said, I think the value in working in some of those 
um, positions, while they might not be a traditional path for a registered dietitian, they really allow you to kind of see not only some of the successes, but also potentially some of the challenges and maybe um, disadvantages that folks really um, might live with. And I think when we're, especially in the clinical setting, it's hard for us to really paint a whole picture of mm-hmm. someone just because um, they might have um, a food insecurity risk or they might have um, an order for a low sodium diet. And it might not be very reasonable for them to go purchase some of the foods that we're recommending, but how can we work with people in the community or even just local stakeholders to help support some of those changes that we're um, recommending and referring as well? And I, and and I'm glad that you asked a couple of questions about some of my projects that I've been working on because I am very excited to talk talk more about how some of those have been helpful, but also um, rewarding too. Amazing. And actually going back to really when you're in the community and you get to see people, for me, it was starting out as a clinical dietitian, but it's not until I was doing the home visits and the follow-ups where I really got to understand the challenges that a lot of families face. And so that really changed my approach and my perspective and the way I, when I was in clinical or doing outpatient, I just completely changed the way I conversed with with people, mm-hmm. keeping that in the back of my mind. I was just going to say, yeah, and that's kind of like what allowed me to continue my journey into cooperative extension, um, which is uh, one of the agencies in um, New York that a lot, there's cooperative extensions in several states, but Cornell cooperative extensions specifically is mostly in uh, New York with uh, um, agencies in most of the counties. I'm with uh, Jefferson and Lewis County. And a lot of what I do now is more of that um, community-based education and less of the farm to school education. So that's kind of where I am now. And what exactly is a SNAP at ed- nutritionist? Yeah, that is a great question. And what's interesting about um, our cooperative extension agency is that we have uh, general nutrition educators and SNAP education nutrition educators and or SNAP ed nutritionists. And our my main focus as a SNAP education nutritionist is targeting uh, um, low income audiences or people who might be qualified for or are currently receiving SNAP benefits. So while I, for example, can't go table at a paid event, I can go table at a farmer's market that is in a predominantly, um, in an area that is predominantly low income, which we base all of our um, information off of the census. We um, collect information based on um, the local schools. If they are a certain free reduce rate, we will go in and provide education as well. So while I am not able to see all of the population in our counties, I do work with a lot of different organizations like the Mental Health Association. Um, I've worked with our DPAO office, which is the Disabled Persons Assistance Organization. And uh, I do a lot of work with the DSS and job readiness programs where I go into the social service organization and I provide not only advice and resources for folks to make healthy choices that allow them to be successful at work, but also allow them to make the most out of their income that they're learning. So a lot of uh, supplemental education is what I'm allowed to do. I do not specifically give uh, recommendations or diet orders to people. But one thing that I very much enjoy about this opportunity is it allows me to have conversations with people who might be seeing a doctor or might be seeing a nutrition 
uh, a nutrition educator or maybe a dietitian and giving them the confidence to ask questions about their health or giving them resources to do their own education and um, research that allows them to also have a successful interaction with that dietitian or that nutrition nutritionist that might be in the hospital. Yeah. And when you're working with individuals who have limited access, so it's not enough to just go in there and say, eat this, or I'm going to remove this. There are so many, it's multifaceted, as Mm -hmm. you discussed. What are some strategies that you feel have been effective to help have a meaningful connection with people to engage and educate them on making these positive choices? I think one of the most impactful ways that you can encourage or work with or even converse with someone to make positive uh, dietary choices is focusing on what you can add versus what you can take away. Mm-hmm. A lot of um, individuals in not only vulnerable vulnerable communities and audiences, but also people who are uh, low income, they're working with limited resources, not maybe only to feed themselves, but also people within their household and potentially their families. And I have been better at all at sharing with folks what are foods that you can use to uh, um, complement the things that you're already buying. Um, while it's it's very clear that ramen noodles isn't the healthiest option that folks can buy and might not be something that we encourage, what, what can I add to that dish that allows me to have a complete meal? And so I, and I, one of the things that I did not know that I would have a lot of interest with working with is our job readiness program with the DSS. And a lot of people, you know, having real conversations with me about the difficulties that they have with uh, not only eating affordably, but also buying healthy foods too. And I think those conversations have been very meaningful because it allows them to really, you know, share some of their struggles in at, at, first glance, they might see me as a a nutrition educator that's coming in to tell them all the things that they're doing wrong or that they have to change. And a big part of our um, education is that we want to focus on small things that make a big difference. And what are some things that I can switch or swap in a recipe or a cooking practice or utilize what I'm already buying and being able to complement that with foods that I can maybe plug and play in different um, places. Uh, a lot of our education uses um, my plate as a basis, not just for research, but also providing education. And while I don't think my plate is the most perfect model, I think it's a great way of looking at what are major groups of foods that I can buy with my budget, but also what are things that can supplement or substitute in those areas. Because while everyone might not choose to drink low-fat dairy products, there are other ways that they can make positive dietary choices within those food groups. And oftentimes when I break that down and that I'm not here to um, tell people what they should be doing, but how can they best utilize their resources, that allows for folks to feel comfortable asking some of those questions that they might um, be hesitant to ask when first coming into the room. Yeah, and it sounds like beyond just being a food and nutrition expert, you're also being an advocate because in the community setting especially, you have to take into account 
all of the social determinants of health. And just to define that for our listeners, it's economic, social, environmental factors that influence an individual and community's overall health status. So what role do you feel you having been an advocate has played in addressing all of those when you're working with underserved communities and their access to proper nutrition? Yeah, and I think advocacy plays a huge role in our ability to really break down some of those social social determinants of health and having a positive impact, not just on the individual, but also the greater community as well. Um, I think being able to uh, um, sh- focus on how food and nutrition security can play a huge role in influencing several factors is a great place to start, um, not just focusing on how proper food and nutrition affects us at work, but also how it affects our, um, if you want to look at it more broadly, national security as well. Originally, the um, the National School Lunch Program was kind of established in the early 19, or mid-1900s to really help us stay healthy as a nation and being able to not only provide um, nutrition assistance to those who are most vulnerable, but also creating an advocating for policies and grants that support people who are most vulnerable will have some of the most impact on them as well. And and a lot of folks, uh, I think, should consider that any changes in a, a local environment, whether it's neighborhood infrastructure, accessibility, or affordability barriers will affect the most vulnerable um, populations at, at the highest degree. And especially with uh, um, some of the things that I have noticed, especially with uh, uh, vulnerable populations, I think it's that built environment that sometimes plays a the largest role in not just eating nutritionally, but also making positive dietary practices. Um, one, one example of a way that I've kind of advocated for um, helping with this built environment um, aspect of the determinants of health is uh, one of the apartment complexes that has uh, senior housing. I worked with their housing manager to uh, um, collect orders for a workshop that I was doing. And these these orders would be uh, sent to a farmer that I've built a relationship with. And because she already visits the town that the apartment complex is in, um, she's able to drop off orders of locally grown food that she has on her farm. And this has not only made it easier for the, our elderly population to access that food, but a lot of the conversations that I was having with them was that they cannot access the farmer's market. They have trouble getting to the grocery store. Some of them have a limited uh, resources in the terms of their apartments. And I think creating programming is a very unique way that we as dietitians can um, help um, break down some of those social determinants of health. Yeah, and you brought up that great point about community partnerships and how valuable those are because it really benefits the entire community. And I'm sure you've had opportunities to leverage community partnerships or observe the impact of community partnerships. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. And I think community partnerships is a is a critical way that we can address the needs of those underserved groups that are certainly the most vulnerable. Um, utilizing partnerships across many levels of our community can not only promote success of the of any health initiative that you might uh, want to start, but also it encourages that synergistic programming 
that helps impact all aspects of the community, not just within your own organization or yourself, but also um, building on relationships with like-minded people in your own community or maybe even on the state level. Um, again, talking about um, leveraging some of those relationships, working with uh, um, local producers to bring uh, um, shares to folks who may are maybe at your workshops, um, conversing with uh, local primary care providers and applying for grants that allow you to kind of work in the food as medicine workshops is a great way of not only um, helping people that are maybe visiting a hospital setting, but also people who might be potentially in your workshops as well. And I think when we as dietitians, regardless if you're in the food service world, um, the clinical world, or even the community health world, understanding um, how our roles can complement each other can be a great way of avoiding um, that uh, maybe a potential for stepping on each other's toes. I think a lot of organizations are very, like you said, very passionate about making those sustainable changes. And one thing that I was able to kind of observe is that when organizations are able to not only meet, but also talk with each other about any potential grants or programmings that they're doing, we can very, we can very easily complement are not just our approach, but also the success and sustainability of those programs. Um, another example that I'll give very quickly is that uh, we work with uh, uh, the Food Bank of Central New York, and we have a um, nutrition outreach education program um, head that helps people apply for um, SNAP benefits and uh, um, receive supplemental nutrition assistance. And I regularly communicate with them to not only tell them about workshops that I'm doing, but also what are opportunities for people who may not qualify for our program or for SNAP or who may be interested in other um, access to other, other places that they can access affordable food at a reduced price. And when we're able to effectively communicate not just our goals, but our objectives, that's when we can not only truly understand each other, but also help people in our community as well. Love it. So it's going back to wearing that advocacy hat. Um, Colton, I want to ask you about when you're working in community health, and this goes across all industries related to nutrition. I mean, it's all industries in general, but there can often be a lot of misinformation, misconception, maybe some resistance, hesitation, um, in our case about nutrition. How do you address those, uh, you know, all of those factors while still being respectful and informative. Yeah, I, I think this is a very interesting point because there, we're, we live in a time now where we have never had this much information yeah. access to our fingertips. And that's why I enjoy opportunities like this, getting on podcasts, blog posts, or even um, just writing on uh, uh, Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, getting your expertise and information out there allows us to really show that, um, hey, I'm an expert in this field. And this is how um, I can not only provide education, but also um, provide people with information that is accredited and backed by research. Mm -hmm. um, I've found that 
beginning with affirmation with someone who's um, posing maybe a controversial point or maybe um, isn't aware that what they've read is misinformed is a great way to kind of start breaking down or correcting some of that um, education that they've learned or maybe something that they read in an article that they were scrolling by. Um, in a classroom, sometimes I'll hear, well, I read somewhere and that and that at first comes across as a red flag. I'm like, oh gosh, what yes. are they going to say? <laughs> and like you said, you don't want to have that surprised face where I'm showing this person like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe you just asked that question. And I've, through the conversation of our workshops, been able to help um, accommodate some of these questions that maybe I'm not expecting. And, and again, one thing that I've loved about working with children is that sometimes they'll say the most ridiculous things. Yes. And I've been able to not only ingest that, but how can mm -hmm. I reflect that back? And I think like what you said, active listening too, yeah. that is a huge part of showing someone that not only you heard them, but also you want to share your point of view as well. And I think when we're able to not only affirm what someone is saying, but then also provide a, either a course correction or an example of a counterpoint to that um, question or that thought that's being asked, that allows us to have a very productive conversation. Like you said, you don't want to be, uh, it, it's good to be an expertise in the field, but you don't want to be that nutritional overlord that shuts down the conversation or just says, nope, that's not the correct answer. What you read is wrong. But being able to share with folks maybe um, a, another point of view that allows them to see it differently and have them think, oh, maybe, um, maybe I should be more mindful about the articles or the places that I'm going for my information. Um, oftentimes I will get um, some of the very obvious ones like carbs are, um, aren't carbs bad for you or yes. you know, fat, fats are bad for you. Or um, sometimes I'll, I'll get the, the comment like, oh, so you're here to tell me how to eat right. And I don't look forward to those conversations, but I, um, I am very much I'm very much motivated to talk with people about some of these preconceived notions that they have, or just maybe something that they read. I think um, there's a lot of um, people out there that do want to make health conscious choices. And sometimes it, it could just be the fact that they maybe scrolled by a post that was um, that just had something quick and easy for them to read. And it's like, oh, like this is a cut and dry answer. And unfortunately with health, it's not always that. Uh, one thing that I always try to find, and I use this example quite a bit, is that someone says keto and low carb diet is yeah. it, is the is the right way, or it helps you lose weight. And I always start out with the idea behind it is that you want to focus on where your carbs are coming from, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks think that all carbs are bad when it's all asking yourself, uh, what are the carbs that I'm eating? Are they complex carbs? Are they um, simple and processed carbs that are very low in fiber? And even like talking about highly processed foods, um, all highly processed foods are bad. I personally do not necessarily think that. I think that processed foods can serve as a supplement to some of the foods that we eat because cereals are processed food, canned foods are processed. Right. And uh, if I, for example, am on limited resource and I buy maybe um, the off-brand cereal that is unflavored, but it's made with whole grain oats, 
that's something that's going to not only nourish my body, but it's going to be available at an affordable price too. So I think, I think a huge part of having these conversations about being misinformed or clarifying anything is having a conversation about it and being able to not only affirm what the person is saying, but also how can I redirect this conversation back to the topic at hand? Yeah. And going back to your original points about acknowledging people's lived experience has to be first and foremost and non-negotiable. And then the second is not what to take away, but what to add in, because we know those are going to be the most impactful messagings out there where you're not losing people along the way. Um, Colton, I want to ask about, I would imagine the goal of any community health initiative program would be success, and that could be measured in different ways. In your opinion, how do you ensure that whatever efforts that you've put into something have been relevant and impactful? Yeah, I I think that this is a very important conversation to have, not just within your own program, but also with other stakeholders as well, is that while I think it's very important to have a successful program, and this can be measured in many different ways, I think also creating something that is sustainable is also very important as well. And I've certainly, um, working in nonprofits and also with educational programs, I've seen certainly my fair share of programs that have um, been quote unquote successful, whether it's by attendance or by success stories or takeaways, but also programs that maybe weren't what we envisioned. And I think a big part of ensuring success is not only taking into consideration um, how many people um, are impacted by that program, but also um, is this something that's going to be not just sustainable, but also something that can be maintained after um, changes or people have left the program. And I, and I think especially working in a nonprofit, there is a lot of turnover in that industry and being able to maintain some of those programs can certainly be challenging. Uh, One of the things that we provide under our extension agency is a fruit and vegetable prescription program, which is essentially a nutrition incentive um, where we work with a partnered primary care providers and also local public health um, organizations that do like a diabetes prevention course. And we have them refer patients that meet certain um, food disease related criteria, anything from hypertension to at risk for um, diabetes, even familial risk of even familial history of diabetes is on there too. And one thing that I have certainly appreciated with this is that it also includes an area for food insecurity or how often do I feel worried about where my um, food is coming from is an indicator as well. And while this is has been a very successful program so far, I think a way of measuring that isn't just in uh, um, the amount of people that we are impacting but also the stories and uh, the uh, down the road uh, impacts that that has on participants as well. Um, We do a lot of efforts to not only capture testimonials, but also record stories and encourage people to share some of those um, barriers that they've overcome, or maybe something that they had their aha moment. They're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this was something that I could do. Um, One of my favorite things that I always like to talk to folks about is um, I 
do farmers markets tours with uh, this program. And I always invite participants after to um, shadow me or talk with people at the farmers market. And uh, one of our success stories is that um, I was talking to folks about kohlrabi, which is a very unique mm-hmm. vegetable. And yep. it's very easy to buy in our neck of the woods during the summer months. And uh, I gave a recipe to one participant they're like this is now like a family recipe that we have we make it every night (laughs) yeah it's 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 opportunities like those and especially allowing you to showcase some of the stakeholders that maybe might not see that first glance they might not be able to see the interactions that you're having and and uh, i think it's very important for you to show not just the impact that you're having um on a level of how many participants you're seeing and referring, but also what are some of those stories that they're sharing that really is like, wow, I like this program is impacting people, but it's also getting people motivated to have practices that are sustainable, but also allow them to continue those um, points and topics that we're, um, that we're conversating with them as well. Yeah. And you know, I'm highly passionate about storytelling. So I'm so happy that you brought that up. Speaking of aha moments, um, personally for you as a dietitian, what do you think have been sort of the ups, the pluses, then of course the the not so good stuff and the challenges? I think one of the ups and pros about being a dietitian first and foremost is that you are an ambassador of uh, a licensure that has a wealth of knowledge that is involved with someone every single day. People all around the world eat food. People from many different cultures um, make food. Food is used as a way to connect with people. Food is used as a way to um, have fun and enjoy. And oftentimes, when it comes to nutrition education, um, you're you're able to not only share your knowledge but also have conversations with people and um, working in the community health arena as a dietitian and as an educator, I think it allows us to not only create a, a setting that is comfortable but also it allows us to make seeing uh, seeing our um, not just our coworkers, but also people within our profession more approachable. And going back to that conversation, I can't give people specific re- recommendations based on their health. Someone came to me with a, a with a, wanting to know what kinds of foods they can eat with stage three uh, kidney, kidney disease. And while I can't talk with them about their glomerular filtration rate, I can mm-hmm. have them feel confident with going to their um doctor to ask to speak to a nutritionist or a dietitian or make them feel more comfortable with having that conversation and that, you know, we're not here to, um, you know, pick apart what you eat. We're here to talk about how you can make that not only nutritious, but also something that's enjoyable too. So I think as an ambassador, that's a huge advantage and very rewarding um, learning early on um, that in these major areas of focus, whether it's clinical food service or even community health, you have that ability to not just share your information, but also provide it in a very unique way because we are versatile. Our profession is just evolving at a um, very interesting rate. And there's lots of opportunities for people to really showcase this, um, education expertise, whether it's in grocery stores, if it's um, in clinical 
uh, setting. If it's um, working with a food service department at a football stadium, there's ways that you can provide that expertise, but also make it impactful as well. Love and, it. And co- no, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to talk about some of the disadvantages, but yes. feel free to check. Yeah. I would love for you to, because that's keeping it <laughs> honest, right? And real for people. Yeah. And I, and I think, yeah, something that we've kind of mentioned a little bit is that people as in the role of nutrition education or dietitians are still unfortunately seen as that nutritional um, overlord. Um, when someone hears that, oh, um, there is a nutrition educator from Cornell here to talk to you about food and health. It, some people roll their eyes and uh, think that I'm going to just um, come come down with a um, iron fist and tell them about all the proper ways that you should be eating. And uh, um, I'm unfortunately still having some of those conversations with participants in that I'm not here to uh, um, pick apart or tell you how wrong it is that you're eating, but also um, share with you the resources that I have available. And especially as a dietitian, it's, you know, seeking to prove yourself and your expertise. Uh, like I said earlier, there's a wealth of just information that is very um, accurate, but also very inaccurate out there. And sometimes you're kind of working against the grain of, you know, latest TikTok trends or Mm -hmm. um, latest, yeah, absolutely, the streamers on YouTube or people talk, everyone has a voice now in a podcast. And it's not that I want to shoot down people that are sharing wrong information, but I want to have conversations with people that are like, hey, just because you heard this from one place doesn't mean that it's the uh, it's so facto correct way. And I'm and you're you're familiar with this as well. And that our um, nutrition uh, occupation is constantly um, researching not just how food affects our bodies, but also how food plays a role in our health. And I mean, even a couple of decades ago, uh, fat was um, fat is very different than how we see it now. Uh, carbohydrates is different from how we saw it, you know, years ago as well. And even how we build our um, recommendations for the nation, we had the food pyramid uh, back in the day, and now we have the my plate and there's always this conversation that I'm having with individuals that um, nutrition is always changing and that, you know, there's not um, that what I eat doesn't matter and getting people motivated about um, making positive dietary practices can be very challenging. So seeking to prove not just the um, importance of nutrition, but also um, fighting that um, stream of misinformation is sometimes on a daily basis can be very challenging, but also the stigma that we're, um, that we're there to just, you know, um, tell people how they should eat rather than uh, work with them to make the most of what they're buying as well. Yeah, I feel like you should get that printed on a shirt, be an ambassador, <laughs> not an overlord, right? Since right. there are some of us out there that maybe have merchandise that could be that could be yours for the dietitians. Um, Colton, where can our listeners find out more about you if they want to get in touch with you, if they have questions, they want to find out more about the programs you're involved with? How can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me at Colton McCracken. That's C-O-L-T-O-N. And last name is a bit of a long one, but M-C-C-R-A-C-K-E-N. 
Um, my, you can also contact me on my personal email. It, that's mccracken.colton at gmail.com. Um, we talked about this a couple of times. I'm not on social media professionally, but I would love to start um, making a better effort to um, provide that um, opportunity for folks to connect with me. But I'm very easy to um, chat with. If you want to shoot me an email, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm usually can get back to folks very quickly and i'm more than happy to chat over the phone text or even virtually at your request as well awesome and i will include all of those in the show notes if there are other links and resources that you think would be valuable for our audience i would love to include those as well um colton i want to thank you so much for being here to raise awareness. We know that you're out there making an impact and teaching us how providing people with safe, accessible places to learn about nutrition, it can all really help shape behavior around a more healthier lifestyle. And that includes both the mental and physical components. So thank you so much for the valuable work that you do and sharing your story with all of us. Yeah. And thank you for providing a place to, for professionals to connect. Again, if you're out there and wondering how you can um, have an impact, not just on your community, but also food and nutrition, like kind of what we had talked about today, just having those conversations, getting um, active in the community, reaching out to people. I think that's a great place to have these wonderful conversations and work with uh, um, people in your own community, but also people who are like-minded as well. Awesome. That's a perfect way to end. And to the listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Nilforush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.